Support for WIPR's podcasts comes from Brightview Senior Living. Since 1999, Brightview has proudly served Greater Baltimore with vibrant, independent living, assisted living, memory care, and enhanced care. Find a community near you at brightviewseniorliving.com. We got through the fence. Our next obstacle was the perimeter road, which we understood was constantly surveilled. He said, I'm tired of this. He said, there's a, there's a big pool about 10 or 15 blocks away, and I want you all to go into that pool. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Soup Storytelling Series podcast. I'm Laura Wexler. And I'm Jessica Hankin. And this week on the podcast, we are continuing our Best of the Soup series. We're heading into our 15th year and preparing to return to live shows next month. Yay, yay, yay. And so in advance of that, we're revisiting some of our favorite stories from our history. Uh, This week, Hellraisers, two true personal tales from people who've devoted their lives for fighting what they believe in, despite the cost, the actually really high cost. Before we get started, we want to thank the Park School of Baltimore, which has been a longtime uh, sponsor of the podcast. They are an independent, non-sectarian, pre-K through grade 12 school located right outside of Baltimore. Okay, so this first story is shared by Liz McAllister. So um, Ms. McAllister is a former Catholic nun who met and fell in love with Philip Berrigan who you may know from the Catonsville Nine um, anti-Vietnam War protests. And they married, so they both were excommunicated from the Catholic Church. He was, he was a um, priest. And they continued doing protests against nuclear war, against war, against violence of all kinds throughout their lives. So most recently, um, Liz McAllister was serving time in prison, okay, she's 80, um, for a action that she and several several other protesters took against a nuclear war base in Georgia. This story that she's sharing is about an event that occurred back in the 1980s. And Liz uses the term plowshares, a plowshares action. And what that comes from is the biblical verse about turning swords into plowshares. So transforming, you know, weapons of destruction into into weapons of peace. Um, So take a listen. It was the wee hours of Thanksgiving morning, 1983. And with six friends, I had just climbed through the fence onto the property of Griffith Air Force Base in Rome, New York. And we intended to be, by morning, the Griffiths plowshares. Ever heard of plowshares? At Jonah House, the community that I've lived in here in Baltimore since 1973, we spent a lot of time with the prophecy of Isaiah. And we're especially moved by his mandate that we beat swords into plowshares spears into pruning hooks, that nation not learn war anymore. Living in a country that was working on and almost at first strike nuclear capability, 
that rang clear to us, but how? How do we beat sewers into plowshares? We began moving towards some understanding of that with the first plowshares group, the Plowshares 8, my husband Phil, his brother Dan, and six others went into the GE facility in King of Prussia, Pennsylvania, and hammered and poured their blood on the Mark 12A warheads. We were looking that Thanksgiving morning at the B-52, which was the final stage in our nation's first strike nuclear capability with air-launched cruise missiles. These planes that had done so much damage in Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia, were now being retrofitted to drop nuclear or to project nuclear cruise missiles on our so-called enemies. We got through the fence. Our next obstacle was the perimeter road, which we understood was constantly surveilled, trucks going on it, across the road with no problem. And we headed up across the golf course to get to the silo that we were heading for. No, it wasn't a silo. It was a, it, <clears throat> it was a place where the airmen learned to upload cruise missiles into the belly and under the wings of the B-52. So we started across the golf course and 360 degrees all around us, the place was alive with sirens. I grabbed hold of Jackie Allen. I said, Jackie, we must have tripped something. But we kept walking. We kept moving toward our goal. About half an hour, 40 minutes later, you could see it just over the rise, this hangar. And as we got closer, there was a light coming from the hangar. The big doors that allowed the roll-up doors that allowed the B-52 access. They were about three feet off the ground, and there was light underneath them. There was lights on in this, in this hangar. We could have gone in underneath the big door, but we chose the human door instead, which was also unlocked and open. We went in. The lights were on. The doors were open, and there was no one there except us. Already, Vern Rossman had started using his hammer. We came armed with hammers, household hammers, a bottle of our own blood, baby bottle, and some pictures, spray paint, and things that we wanted to leave as a call to something different. Vern started immediately to hammer on the B-52. I said, Vern, you're making too much noise. You know, you can't hammer on metal without making noise. <laughs> Wake up. Uh, so I took my hammer and began working with him. Jackie was with us, and she, she was using a hammer her brother-in-law had used when he was part of the uh, Trident 9 plowshares. Second blow, the head came off her hammer, so she was finished with that. We took the blood then and poured it on the, down the sides of the plane and on the floor and began putting pictures of children and messages that we spray-painted on the floor. Meanwhile, our four friends were in the back of that another section of that hangar, and they were addressing some of the engines. 
for the B-52 and for vehicles, uh, airplanes that would accompany it on its missions. Ten minutes after we went in, we were all, all assembled outside the hangar. We unfurled our banner. The sirens were still apparent, but they were much less offensive. Might have been me. Um, and we all breathed gratitude for being able to do what we wanted to do. But at that point, Carl Smith said, you know, I saw a phone in there. And maybe we could get a call through to our friends in Syracuse. So he and Claire Grady went back in. He picked up the phone. He was immediately in touch with the switchboard operator. And he said, happy Thanksgiving to you. Could I please have an outside line? And she responded in kind. And he called our friends in Syracuse. And they came out and shared this amazing bit of information with us, but something else. He said, you've got to come back in and look at this. Because in the corner of the hangar was a pylon with six cruise missiles just sitting there. This is what they would load underneath the wings of the B-52. And his question was, should we mark these as well? Well, I, for one, and I think it was terror more than wisdom, I said, no, no. Let's stay with what we planned because we've done it and it's not good to just keep on going. We don't know enough about it. Also, we want always to preserve the symbol. This is not an orgy of violence or an orgy of destruction. We always have to weigh the damage that we do with the risks we take in our own lives. Otherwise, it's just destruction for its own sake. That seemed to be satisfying. We all went back out, and I could notice on the perimeter road, dawn was beginning to break. There was a car down there, so we moved our banner and ourselves to that road. And shortly thereafter, other cars came and looked askance at us, and then security was on us. How'd you get here? Because you're leaving the same way you came, was how he introduced it. Kathleen Rumpf was our appointed spokesperson, and she said, well, before you escort us off the base, you may want to look in that hangar because we've done our plowshares action there, and when you see it, you may want not to escort us off the base. And they did, and they didn't. <laughs> Lie down on the ground, face down, don't move. We had all these guns at us. Well, it was cold. It had begun to rain. But we had all these guns on us, so we lay on the ground. Probably about an hour, and then they brought a bus up, put us on the bus, drove to another building. No idea where we were. But we sat on that bus all day. It was about 5, 6 o'clock before we were brought into the building that we were sitting outside of and were questioned by FBI. I'm not very fond of FBI. I'm sorry if anybody here has that affiliation, but um, I think the only question I answered was to say, no, we didn't do anything you couldn't see. So we went from there to the jail in Syracuse, New York, and we thought we'd be there for the duration. We learned that we were charged with, well, trespass, 
destruction of government property, conspiracy to destroy government property, sabotage, conspiracy to commit sabotage. That might have been it. Um, <laughs> but we were looking at 25 years in jail if you added that all up. But some weeks later, we appeared in federal district court in Syracuse. Courtroom was full of friends, even some family members. And it became clear we had deep ties to this community, so we were released on personal recognizance. I called home. The phone was answered by my then nine-year-old daughter, Frida, and she said, Mom, does that mean it's over? I said, oh, no, darling, it's only just begun. We'll have a good talk when I get home. Trial followed about three months later, and we were pro se defendants trying to put on a defense of necessity, given the realities that we all walk with and face. I think we did a remarkable job, and we did a remarkable job continuing to build community in one another and support one another through three, four weeks of dealing with witnesses. And, But the judge ruled that we had not established Imminence, which is one of the things we had to establish for necessity so that our defense could not go to the jury. But the jury did rule us innocent of sabotage, innocent of conspiracy to commit sabotage. And about a month later, we were sentenced. Dean Hammer came to sentencing with this thought that a miracle happened in that, on that base on that morning and that a miracle could happen in this courtroom. And we want to add that a miracle can happen whenever people of conscience and goodness get together and try to make a difference. We were sentenced that day and went immediately to jail and then to prison. The three men and I got three years, and the three other three women, two years, which we served and maxed out on. Maybe a little wiser for it. Thank you. When we were around Liz that evening, it really felt like we were around someone who just was of a different quality as a human being. Yeah, yeah, um, I agree. She just, it, uh, it, it felt like, I mean, to say something like, um, I don't know, like a spiritual entity versus a human being, I know is aggrandizing and maybe hyperbolic, but I actually really feel comfortable saying that. Um, well, and there's, you know, it was like the the calm and kind of unshowy confidence of somebody who has a hundred percent conviction on what they're doing, you know, yeah. with their lives. And it was interesting because, you know, I I had had her on my radar and had been wanting to, you know, connect with her to share a story for a long time. And it took me quite a bit of convincing to get her to share that story so she is not interested in the spotlight and I think honestly the only reason she did this was to let people know about their cause you know it wasn't she was not interested in telling a personal story that was just a vehicle that I think she was able to tolerate in order in order yeah. to you know get some visibility for for their cause so yeah she's yeah. amazing 
Before um, we get to our next story, we want to thank Mend Acupuncture uh, for being a podcast sponsor. They offer enjoyable and low-stress acupuncture sessions that start at $35, and they've got two locations in the Baltimore area. So uh, this next storyteller, it's uh, just absolutely an honor as well to have ever have met him in person and have um, the ability to say that uh, he shared the story um, on a stage that that we were on at the same time. Um, it is Elijah Cummings. He is an American politician, civil rights advocate. Um, he served in the House of Representatives for Maryland's seventh congressional district from 96 until his death in 2019. He's a beloved figure. And uh, this is the story of um, when he was a young child growing up in Baltimore City. Take a listen. My mother and father were former sharecroppers from Manning, South Carolina. They came to Baltimore right after they got married in the 1940s. They had less than uh, I think mom had like a third grade education. Dad had a fourth grade education and they um, had been sharecroppers. In other words, they they could actually, my father could trace his sharecropping efforts to slavery. Same land. And so they were made to pick the strawberries and tobacco and plow the fields. And so they took them out of school, and they were not allowed to go to school. And even if they could go to school, as they tell it, the school was like three, four miles away. And a lot of times they had to travel through woods and, and whatever. And so they came to Baltimore. And their vision was to educate all of their children. It wasn't about just getting a better better pay. It was about opportunity. We weren't even born yet, but they had a vision for us. And uh, I'm telling you this for a reason, because it, it's, it, it all hooks together. So mother was a domestic. Daddy was a laborer. And they would be gone all day in, in the summertime, and we would go to the pool. Now, I lived in South Baltimore, 126 West Cross Street. This house is still there. And this is near Hamburg Street Bridge. And anybody who knows anything about South Baltimore knows that if you were going in that main front gate of Raven Stadium, there's a bridge right there, the main, and that's Hamburg Street Bridge. When you walk easterly over that bridge, you were where I lived. It looked a lot different then. And on that side of the bridge, there's still African-Americans, many of whom, by the way, lived there when I lived there 55 years ago. And if you notice, there's a small black area, and then you cross Light Street, and you move into, you see a lot of white people. And I wasn't trying to be funny, but we would... We had a pool. We had a little playground at the end of that bridge. As soon as you get over the bridge, there was a little playground, and literally it had a pool about the size of this stage. It was a wading pool. It was about two feet deep. And the pool was so small, you got to keep in mind, back then families had 
on the average of five, six, seven kids. And the pool was so small that we literally had to wait turns to get in the pool. And it was supposed, you're supposed to be cooled off in the, in the, in the waiting pool. But by the time, you, you know, you keep in mind what I'm saying. Cement at the bottom, right? <laughs> uh, maybe three, maybe 100, 150 kids in this little space at one time. And if you didn't make the first round, you literally got into some pretty hot water. I mean, it was hot. <laughs> but that was our world. That was our world. And then something happened. A fellow named Jim Smith, who was our recreation leader, and no one will ever tell me that parents and adults cannot have phenomenal impact on children. A fellow named Jim Smith, who's still living, by the way, and who helped me in my first campaign when I ran for Congress 14, 15 years ago. Jim Smith said, you know what? I'm tired of this. This African-American man who had been in the military, had reached the uh, rank of captain, was now uh, a... Uh, a recreation leader, he said, I'm tired of this. And he told us little kids, I must have been nine years old, this around 1960. He said, there's a, there's a big pool about 10 or 15 blocks away, and I want you all to go into that pool. So he gathered us together, and we marched over to, to the pool. And we looked, and we couldn't believe it. There was an Olympic-sized pool. And imagine, see, a lot of people don't know what race does to the psyche of people, particularly kids. Here you are, a little kid, and you're standing in line waiting for an hour or two to get in a, a pool with two feet of water. And then you go a few blocks away and see people, uh, maybe 20 or 25, jumping into an Olympic-sized pool you begin to ask yourself, what is this? Did I miss something? What's wrong with me? And then you begin to see something else. See, you, you got to understand, we were, we, were, we were analyzing this from the standpoint of a child. A child deals with things from the emotional, emotional standpoint. Adults, intellectual. And so we're sitting there saying, wait a minute. And then we look at all the people in our, at our pool, and it was segregated. We look at the people at the Riverside pool, and it was segregated. And so Mr. Smith, he, he, gave, he just wanted us to see what we were aiming at. And then we went back, talked to our parents, and the next thing you know, every day we would march to the pool for several days. And I'll never forget, I have a scar on my face right now, where adults, adults, I can still see their faces, and you know what the interesting thing is? I can feel the same feelings right now. That was 50 years ago. I can feel the same stuff. And one of them hit me with a milk bottle. I'll never forget it. Cursing at us, calling us everything but a child of God. And then there came a woman named Juanita Jackson Mitchell from the NAACP. I didn't even know what the NAACP was. But she said, we're going to help you. And she came with a whole group of people, and we marched some more and marched some more. And finally, there came a day when we integrated the pool. But the damage was done. See, a lot of people think once you 
get past a something like that and you say, oh, I've got a victory. We can now go in the pool. We can now go in the pool. We, I'm excited. We can go in the pool. Damage is done. Damage is done because you began to realize. See, as long as you're in that little world, in your little world, where you don't know there's something better, it's your little world. But when you go out and you see a world blocks away, it's a whole nother thing. And so what lessons came out of this for me? First of all, it has made me color everything black and white. If somebody white would do something to me, I automatically thought it was racist. And a lot of folks won't tell you this from my generation, but it's true. They won't tell you that. And you have to literally fight in your own mind to say that it's not. It's also like the gentleman was speaking a moment ago about these certain presumptions that, that come along and that are part of your psyche. There's another thing that happens that makes you wonder. There used to be a song entitled, What Becomes of the Brokenhearted? I think about that song every day of my life. Because I realize that there are so many children who went through similar experiences that I went through that were negatively affected and they did not have perhaps the, 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 the parents to talk to or maybe the parents didn't understand it or maybe they didn't have uh, the religious background that I was blessed to have. And I'm not saying I'm anything special. Don't get me wrong. But the fact is, is that trying a parent trying to... Uh, explain to a child why it is that he gets, for example, the books that have been used and torn apart from the white kids. Trying to explain that is hard because you as a little kid don't understand it. It makes no sense. And I remember saying to mommy, but ma, hey ma, you know, I'm, 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 I, I, I look, we just different colors. I said, they white and I'm brown. And it was so hard for her to explain it. But what becomes of the brokenhearted? What becomes of them so often is they go through life, first of all, with low expectations. They go through life believing that there is a ceiling that has been placed on up here. And I've often said that the hardest thing the toughest ceiling to break is the ceiling that you put in your own mind. So many of them fall by the wayside. Because, yeah, they dream. They dream to be the lawyer or the doctor or whatever. And then they saw, while they may have seen the victory at Riverside, they also felt the pain of getting there, and because they were children, they did not fully understand it. And so, you know, we, we do have to get past this race thing. People ask me all the time, so why do you, why do you, why do you live in the, the young lady who came up here, our guest lady, the, came, the, one, that did, the one that talked about the ghetto, ran, in the get, ran, ran into the black neighborhood, that's my neighborhood. No, seriously, that's where I live. 
And the thing that drew me back there, and I wasn't insulted or anything, but the thing that drew me, I could live in so many places. But the thing that drew me back there is because I wanted to have an impact on kids. I wanted to make them realize that they were somebody and that they could have great things and they could be in the White House, that they could be president, that they could be a congressman. And I and I don't and I don't I don't I don't consider it my it's something special, but but when you have seen that kind of rejection, you just want to say I mean I and, and even now a lot of people don't know it I spent uh, my first five or six years in school in special ed. They told me I was in special ed because I talked too much. I'm, that's a true story. And I'll never forget when we would go to the white school. By the way, the white school was on the other side of the bridge. We only had nine rooms in our school. And I'm almost finished now, but we only had nine rooms. And when we would go across the track, we would go to the school, and it blew my mind. I couldn't believe it. First of all, we, we had in my school no cafeteria. We had no auditorium. We had no gymnasium. When you went over to, I'm talking about, keep in mind, talking about Hamburg Street Bridge. When you walked across the bridge, there was a school right there. As soon as you got to pass the river, there's a parking lot now. But what they had was this bit, the thing that I remember the most that stuck out in my mind is when you went in the halls, they had the bulletin boards that kind of were indented with lights. I couldn't believe it. No, seriously. We went into the auditorium, and it looked just like, very nice like this. I couldn't believe it. Cafeteria, food everywhere. Couldn't believe it. And again, you know, again, that was one of those moments. This is, hey, Elijah, what's going on here? Ladies and gentlemen, as one of the older folks up here, in some kind of way, we have to teach our children to put color to the side. And I think they're doing it. I think they're doing it. When, when, let, let, hold on, let me just tell you and tell you why I think they're doing it. They're doing it. I'll never forget, and this is, this is it. When I, when I was running around the country campaigning for, for, for President Obama, I can tell you, I was amazed. I was amazed. I had gone, to, I had gone over the country, and I'd see these people and I see auditoriums, 20,000 people. And so finally we got to College Park. And when we got to College Park, there was about another, there was about 20,000 in the auditorium. There were about 10,000 standing outside. There were about 8,000 in the lacrosse field. And a whole lot of them had been there since, since around 12 o'clock the night before. So... I had an opportunity to talk with the president of student government and some other students after the rally was over. I said, why'd y'all come out for this black man? Because most of them were white. They said, Congressman, you're confused. They said, we did not come out for a black man. We came out for somebody we believed in. And, I, and it hit me. It hit me that I was still operating on my experiences and what I had seen. Keep in mind that when, when, when Obama first ran, 
people, you know, it was black people who were not supporting him. You know why? Not because they did not like him, not because they did not believe in him, but their experiences had told them that white folk would never vote in those kind of numbers for a black man. And if you ask anybody, they'll tell you that. So when he, <laughs> so when he won Iowa, and when he, when he came second in New Hampshire, all hell broke loose. Because the black folks started saying, he can win. But what I'm saying to you is so people ask the question, why is it that black people are so excited? And then I, and I close with this. So this is not a political speech, but, but, but I, you, they ask the question, why are they so excited? It's because they, so many of our experiences have been colored in black and white. So many things that aren't even racist. Because of experiences, you go with a presumption that is racist. And in many instances, it's not. And so I'm just, you know, I just hope when I, you know, I tell my, I tell my kids, I say, you know, when you have a feeling, when you get a feeling, women, y'all know what I'm talking about. You can just feel it. Men don't know what feelings are, but I say, when you get a feeling, women say, you, you know what, you know, you know, you know how I feel. And the men say, what feel? What does that mean? But. I just got this feeling just now. And I was telling my daughter, my daughter said, what is some, what is, at my 28-year-old, she says, what is the, what do you feel real good about, Dad? And I talked, I said, I love my kids. I love you guys. You're just wonderful. I love you. I said, I can go to my grave now. She said, why do you say that? I said, I've lived a good life. I said, I can go to my grave because we have elected an African-American man to the presidency of the United States. I said, and now, you know, maybe I don't have to be trying to be the example or the role model. Or the, they got somebody who's made it to the top. <laughs> but that's how a lot of people feel. And so all the feelings that I talked about with Riverside, those, those negative feelings, Maybe, and, I, and you know, you try to figure out what is it that I can do to make my children realize that they should must, must have high expectations and, and, and that not everything is colored with race and, and, and that there are a lot of very good people of all colors who really care and want people, every single child, to grow up being all that God meant for them to be. How can I make them realize it? Barack Obama. Thank you very much. I love this story for so many of its devastating uh, thoughts and details, and particularly when he shares that, you know, he was so affected by the fact that uh, that he was a child and the people who were hurting him were adults, and he just he 
in his child's brain, he's like, he had such trouble comprehending why adults would want to hurt children. And um, I thought that was so damning and, um, and just, I don't know, just really stuck with me. Um, but the other thing is just like, this action ties into just a, a history of segregation in public school, uh, public pools. I yeah. think we, we all have heard about, you know, sort of schools, but pools were, I mean, they were the summertime equivalent of schools. They were places where kids could go and be safe and have fun. Um, and there were, you know, deaths that occurred, drownings that occurred among African-American children in Baltimore because they could not swim at pools. Yeah. And so it becomes a literally a life or death issue. So anyway, uh, that's just my sort of history take on his story as well. Before we get out of here today, we want to just say thank you, especially for listening to these two stories. I think these are some of the most powerful stories that have been shared on our stage, and we hope you feel the same. We want to thank um, Wine Source and Golden West. They are two businesses in the Hamden area that have great food and drink, and so you should visit them and support them. Leave us a review on uh, Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And thanks to Maureen Harvey for producing and to you for listening. And we will be back soon with more stories from the studio.